Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, our text for this morning will be verses eighteen through twenty-five. First Corinthians chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-five. I'd like to start reading in verse seventeen to just give us a little bit of a a help with what's going on here, what Paul is arguing for. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. For, the, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Brief prayer this morning before we begin. Father, as we come to your word this morning, help us to, with eager hearts, seek to learn from you, to believe that your word truly is what we need to, to guide our lives, to guide our our emotions, our feelings, our desires, our actions, our words, our thoughts, everything. Father, your word is sufficient for us. For all that, all that we need in life and godliness is found in your word. Father, would you open our eyes now so that we might behold wondrous things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that I come before you. Amen. If I was to title of this message this morning, it would be Don't Mess with the Message. Okay. Don't mess with the message, and I know that the guys in the sound booth are happy about that because they, gotta, they didn't have to come up with a clever title to write on the YouTube whether, what to uh, do for a title. As we begin this morning, it's going to be a little bit of a longer introduction uh, because I really think that this text speaks to our current day and our current culture, and so what I want to do is sort of pull out some some, I think some helpful things that we should think about what's happened over the last couple of years and what is truly not new to our culture that we see it. Let me begin by saying this, that we are living in a post-truth world. You might have heard that phrase before, meaning that we are living in a societal crisis of truth. 
it is hard to know what to believe or if you can actually believe anything or anyone. I don't think that I have to convince you that the COVID-19 pandemic exposed this reality of our crisis of truth. As the new virus spread back in 20, the CDC and government leaders naturally struggled to understand what this disease was and how best to contain it. But with the help of our digital age and social media, this meant that the imperfect data, the false estimations, the quick written journals, and contradictory recommendations were spread confidently as if they were true. The spread of false information would become just as deadly as the pandemic itself. And whatever you wanted to believe about the pandemic, and I'm not going to take a stance here, so don't get excited. Whatever you wanted to believe about the pandemic or the stay-at-home orders that were issued by the government, there were articles, there were studies, there were experts that you could find online to defend your view. The options were endless when it came to the opinions of things, so it seemed. The COVID did not create these frightening realities that we're living in a post-truth world, though. It rather just shed light on the fact of this is where we live. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionaries actually declared post-truth as the international word of the year, and they defined it as this. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. In other words, our culture, emotional and personal belief and opinion hold more weight than objective fact when it comes to discovering the idea of truth. This definition does not reveal the truth crisis felt during COVID. It simply explains our cultural temperature at broad. And I think nothing demonstrated this reality of this post-truth world or this crisis that we're living in more clear than when in 2017, Time Magazine posted this question, is truth dead? And on its cover, designed in such a way to mirror its post in 2017, it said 50 years later this question, is God dead? And these two covers, 50 years apart, tell an important story that you and I should not miss. And it's this. Without God as an ultimate standard of truth, all we have is as many truths as there there are individuals living and breathing. To each their own. You do you. You have your truth and I have mine. Don't step on my toes and I won't step on yours. And it's no wonder why we are now as confused as we are. Do away with God, and you do away with truth. Do away with God, and you do away with right and wrong. Let me add one more. Do away with God, and you do away with the solution to humanity's greatest problem, and that being sin. In a post-truth culture that has lost the reality of an objective standard of right and wrong, everyone has their own set of moral standards, their own set of, of truth. And so that we have, like I already said, as many truths as we have individual people in a world. In a, in a world like this, how do you faithfully proclaim an objective reality that all must believe in Christ and repent of their sinful ways? 
if what you deem as sin is not what someone else deems as sin. Because of this subjective relative truth that rules the day, the second that we proclaim that there is an objective standard or form of truth that we all must submit to, our culture says, oh, well, that's fine for you. But I'm going to just kind of live according to mine. You, you can do your thing and, and I'm going to do mine. But our culture, if you actually have listened to them, they don't actually stop there. They go a step further to say this. For you to say that humanity must submit to an objective standard being God That's actually oppressive. And you're attacking me by saying that I'm wrong and you're right. So now, it's not that we only have to tolerate other people's worldview and their moral standards, but to actually speak to them and say that they are wrong is deemed as oppressive. And therefore, we are called to just be quiet when it comes to issues of of the gospel and truth. My question for us this morning is, in a culture like this, how can you and I muster up the truth to actually speak with objective confidence and truth? Secondly, and even more greater, how can a message that has no place in the public square, it's actually deemed as oppressive, even bring salvation to, to mankind? It never ceases to amaze me how relevant the Word of God is for your life, and for my life. As Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers, they were living in a time when the message of the cross, the message of salvation, was actually foolish. We struggle to understand how the cross of Jesus Christ is so offensive because we are so far removed from what was going on in the historical context and background of the day that Paul was writing. In Paul's day, in Corinth, the symbol of the cross was offensive. It had a terrible connotation. If you and I were living in Paul's day, we would never think to hang a cross up behind us. We would never think to wear it on our earrings. We would never think to hang it around our neck, and here's why. What would you think if a lady walked into church today wearing earrings stamped with an image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb dropped over Hiroshima? What would we think? It's a little polarizing. What would you think if a church building was adorned with a ginormous swastika on the front of it? It's not really going to be our best shot at welcoming in, in in our day and culture. Both visions are grotesque. And they're not only abhorrent because the powerful culture cultural associations that come with them, but the cross and crucifixion produced the same shock in the first century. Apart from the emperor's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be put to death by the means of a cross. Crucifixion was reserved for the slave, it was reserved for the alien, it was reserved for the barbarian. Many, though, it's it's not something to be talked about in polite company. Yet today, crosses adorn our buildings, our letterheads, shine from lapels, dangle from from ears, and now one is really scandalized. People who aren't Christians wear them. I see them at the gym all the time, and I ask, hey, what are you wearing around your neck? They go, oh, I grew up going to Catholic church, and I've just never really taken it off. It's, people aren't scandalized by the, the symbol of the cross like they were. And so this cultural distance makes it so hard for us to 
feel the compelling irony that when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's actually the power of God. But for you and me, just because the symbol of the cross is not scandalous, the message that it holds, it, it, it still is. In our culture, though it's not scandalized or, or hostile by the symbol of the cross, they are hostile to the fact that there is an objective truth that says repent and believe or perish. In a culture like this, how, in, how, do, how do you and I respond? And I think this is the question that this text this morning asks us. In a culture like this, what do we do with the message of the gospel? Do we begin to listen to the culture and change the gospel in such a way so that it becomes compelling? I think Paul would beg to differ and say, no, if I preach the gospel, listening to my culture and then preaching it, I'm preaching it with eloquent words of wisdom that actually empties the cross of Christ of its power. So as you and I think through how can you and I be most effective in our post-truth world? I want to argue this morning that you and I should not mess with the message. Don't touch it. Don't tamper it. Proclaim it. It's true. We read this morning in Acts chapter 2, a very clear presentation of what the apostles understood the message of salvation to be and how one came to faith in Christ. It's look at Christ Believe in who he is. Believe in what he has done. Take up your cross and follow him. Well, if we think about what's going on in, with these Corinthian believers, they've just come to belief in Christ just a few years prior to Paul writing. They have a few things out of line. Remember, the Corinthian believers have allowed the social and cultural norms to creep into their way of life. It was very popular in their day to attach themselves to specific philosophers or apologists that were very talented in rhetoric. And these philosophers, they were deemed as the wise men of the day. The wisest philosophers, they had a way with words that persuaded people with reason and logic. The philosopher, he was, his best use of rhetoric was deemed as a very powerful message. If someone could convince other people to buy into his worldview or whatever he was selling, if you will, he was deemed to have a powerful message. If you identified with one of these leaders of the day, you received the social status of that leader that resulted in praise, that resulted in honor, that resulted in success. And what happened is this actually led to individuals taking great pride and boasting in their specific choice of, oh, I'm of, I'm of this philosopher, I'm of this apologist, because the social status that one gleaned from it was quite great. Well, these Corinthian believers began to catch on to this cultural norm. In chapter 1, the Corinthian believers were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, right? And they began to, they began to, um, take these apostles and elders and use them as a ladder to climb up the social stack of the day. In Acts chapter 18, 24, we know that Apollos was an eloquent man skilled in the scriptures, meaning that when he preached, he preached. He was convincing. He was skilled. But there was a temptation to use not only these apostles, but the message that they proclaimed, the word of the cross, 
as just another worldview system to be rhetorically and philosophically argued and reasoned for in the city to procure some sort of following for themselves that would, that would give them greater social status. It would give them honor, success, accolades, and a stigma of wisdom and expertise so that the leaders were not just those to tag along to, but the message that they had was one to be abused. And in a culture like this, where the general temperature to the message of salvation of being found in Christ crucified was offensive, number one, where it's offensive, and number two, a worldview that can be argued well to articulate, excuse me, uh, argued well with rhetoric in the square for social status, you can see how there is a temptation to alter the message of the gospel in order to gain some sort of social status. And in chapter 1 and verse 17, that's where we started there, Paul, by explaining that he was sent by Christ to preach the gospel in such a way that would not empty the the cross of its power, implies that there is a way in which the message of the cross should be preached. You and I should not, as the Corinthians may very well have done, you and I should not mess with the message for the sake of self-elevation or self-preservation because of what the culture deems is, is right. So don't mess with the message, and here's three reasons why. Now, that's a long introduction. Tap into how this relates to us, okay? But I think Paul gives us three reasons why we should not mess with the message of Christ crucified. Number one, it's because the message displays the power of God by dividing humanity. Everybody's got their papers out now. It's like, oh, I'm taking notes. This is different, okay? The message displays the power of God Because of its effect, look at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. The way that Paul begins here actually connects to verse 17 in this way. In verse 17, Paul says this, Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, Then he goes on in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly. The social temperature of the day that the Corinthian believers may have been using the gospel is they were so fixed on the presentation of the gospel in detriment of lacking and neglecting the content of the message. They were so fixed on, oh, how can I present this message in such a way that it either fits into society, so I'm not ridiculed, or that it gives me an opportunity to climb the social ladder. That was how they were fixed and, and preoccupied with, with the presentation of the message. And Paul simply says this, if that's what you're going for, you have emptied the cross of its power. The presentation of the message, this human skill, this creativity, this reason, this logic, this persuasion It was all in a motivation to gain the accolades, to gain the honor of others. While the many leaders and learned scholars of the day told people what to believe, how to live by appealing to their their senses with eloquent words of wisdom, Paul simply resolves to proclaim the word of the cross. While this fascination over the wow factor and the power behind the presentation It would earn an individual great social status. 
personal success, honor, superiority, the content was powerless when you compared it to what the word of the cross can do. Look what the word of the cross can do. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, what is this message of the cross? What is the content of the word of the cross? Well, if you read through the first four sermons in the book of Acts, we read the first one this morning. I did that intentionally to sort of help us out and save some time for us, okay? You will pick up these five truths found in every single sermon. Never tampered with the message. Always come through. One, there is a claim that the great promised time of God's salvation has come. Two, a summary of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Three, a claim that all this was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Four, the assertion that Jesus will come again. And five, an urgent invitation to men and women to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the cross. This is the good news of God that divides humanity. The word of the cross is powerful because of its ability to divide the human race into two categories, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. This isn't a perfect illustration, but movie popped into my mind when I was thinking through this. Anybody ever seen the old movie Davy Crockett? Okay, well, they come to the end of the movie, and Russell brings back bad news to the lead commander that the defense of the Alamo was going to rest on 35 to 40 people. And he says, I won't blame you if you don't stay. It's really for your own patriotism and your conscience. If you decide to bail out now while things are pretty soft before the enemies begin to come in, I I won't blame you. So what he does is he takes his sword and he draws a line in the sand. He says, those who cross the line, stay with us and fight. Those who don't, you're not with us. It's not a perfect illustration because in the movie, if you go and watch to test me on this, they all actually cross over the line, okay? And that would be a sense of universalism if I was going to carry out my illustration, okay? But the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and it is the power of God to those who are being saved because how, the re- how one responds to the message. Paul here sets forth the only division of the human race that is of ultimate importance, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the dividing line between these two things, these two groups of people, is the response to the message of the cross. The word of the cross is folly in the sense that it is rejected. Okay, understand this. It's not folly in the sense that it can't be intellectually understood or it, it can't be comprehended. Okay? Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to children. Okay? It is simple. But why is it foolish? Why is it folly? Because of the response to the message. And this is the case. It's folly because it says it's folly to those who are perishing. Those who perish are those who reject the message of Christ. Those who don't believe. It reminds us of of, of John chapter 3 and verse 18. For those who believe are not condemned. But those who don't are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The reality is, is we actually all come into this world rejecting God and his message. We all come into this world as those who are perishing. At any moment of our life, 
it could be taken from us. And if we have not responded correctly to the message, the reality of perishing for all of eternity will come true. That's why Paul says, you're perishing already. It's as if this is your end. And the reason why this message is so powerful is it because it holds in it the ability to either save or condemn. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation both to the Jew and to the Greek. Well, Paul turns around and he uses the same present tense idea, those who are being saved. Paul might be doing this to remind them that this boastful and prideful group of Christians, like, hey, you're not fully saved yet, okay? It's a process. Or Paul could be tapping into the theological statement that is true of all of us who are saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. And we will one day be fully saved. We have not yet arrived. The message of the cross displays this power of God by dividing humanity into two groups. This cannot be said of any other man-made message. Any other wisdom of mankind. Therefore, we must not mess with it because we might risk stripping it of its power that it has. The question this morning, very simply, is which side of the line are you on? Have you embraced the person and work of Christ as your own? The opportunity is there this morning. Not only does this message reveal the power of God by dividing humanity, different from any other message that the world ever has to offer, But notice, this message reveals the wisdom of God by destroying human wisdom. The message reveals the wisdom of God by destroying human wisdom. Look at verses 19 through 21. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through, we could say, their own wisdom. But it actually pleased God through the folly of what is preached to save those who believe. Paul adds some meat to his point here as he quotes Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 14. And what I think Paul's doing here is when he quotes this is he's, he wants us to understand that It has always been the character of God to take what is foolish to man and accomplish great things through it. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, the original context, it looks towards a time of judgment when God will move to judge his people for their sinful actions. And these people knew that this judgment was coming. And these wise, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the wise whose plans will be destroyed likely have to do with King Hezekiah's Achaia's advisors that were there in Isaiah chapter 14. God complains that they have set themselves up as gods, knowing things better than than God does. They have made themselves the creator rather than accepting and recognizing that they are the creature. They have complained that God has no understanding of their schemes, and this is what they had done. These Israelites knew that judgment was coming, and so what they did was they went to try to make allies with the nation of Egypt so that they would help them in their defense against the Assyrians. Well, the Assyrians actually found out that Israel had gone and tried to make an alliance with Egypt. And out of fear of, oh yeah, 
they might actually have a chance to come up against us. The Assyrians actually attacked early, caught the Israelites by surprise, judged them, they fell, and yet God later on, of course he is sovereign over all things, had determined that to happen. And he would one day restore Israel and save them. But yet it shows us that God will show that he is wise and in control. He goes on in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. The plans of the wise to form this treaty with Egypt to sort of stave off the invasion from Assyria actually came to nothing. God will so reverse those plans of this alliance. And he reversed them in such a way that it actually scared the Assyrians. They attacked Israel early. And from their point of view, this was... Like, this was a good idea. And yet God's salvation of his people comes through a plan that seemed weak. God allowed his people first to suffer the harm of their own wisdom, and then he saved them. His people were invaded, and then he saved them. They were subdued and humbled in the process, yet out of it came God's deliverance. God used something that was weak, and he brought salvation out of it. In this text, Abley suits the point Paul is trying to make in the Corinthians. It's not as though, as God's people, they have come to rely on the wisdom of the world and not recognize that God's wisdom is different. And in apparent weakness will true power be found. God's not weak. But the message of the cross seems weak. Yet in the humiliation of the cross alone, we find God's final and decisive answer for the defeat of sin and the overturning of the wisdom of the world. Paul does not want these Corinthians to think that the message of the cross is just another philosophical system or a supremely wise system that stands over against the folly of others. It's far more than that. Where human wisdom utterly fails to deal with the human problem of sin, God himself takes action. We see it when Israel thought to go out on their own and seek a plan that was wise to them for their own salvation, they failed. And God took that point of weakness and actually ended up turning it into something that was quite powerful. When it comes to dealing with our sin and being reconciled to God, we are powerless when it comes to our own wisdom to think up of a solution. Human wisdom is unable to accomplish what God has accomplished in the cross. The gospel is not simply wise advice, nor is it just good news about God's power. The gospel is the power of God to those who believe. The place where God has supremely destroyed all human arrogance and finding their way to him on their own, the way that God has destroyed that is at the cross of Christ. And Paul drives this home with three rhetorical questions in verse 20. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? These three groups of people um, most likely were regarded as the experts of learning in their field. Okay? The one who was wise, uh, you have to understand, wisdom in the first century was not practical wisdom lived under the fear of God. Okay, that's not what wisdom was in Corinth. Like Proverbs displays it as. Okay? Uh, nor was it a perceived tone of some sort of combination of intuition, insight, and people smarts, like a PhD or an MD. Or, I don't know. Maybe PhDs might not even have practical wisdom. I don't know. But it's not intellectual, okay, in nature. Rather, wisdom was a public philosophy. 
It was a well-articulated worldview that made sense out of life and death and the afterlife, made sense out of the decisions you make, the values, the choices, the priorities, and those who adopted it deemed, yeah, this man is, is wise. Paul's point is this. No public philosophy, no commonly accepted wisdom from the world can have enduring significance if its center is not the cross of Christ. Whatever gain these philosophies had that were being put out by these wise men, whatever they were putting out, they failed to reconcile men and women to God. That's the plain truth. Nothing is more important than that. They cannot uncover the wisdom of the cross. And to that, Paul says, where is the wise man? He is nowhere. Secondly, where's the scribe? This was, this, was the, this was the rabbi of the day. This was the expert in the Old Testament law. The person knowledgeable in theology, if you will. The person knowledgeable in biblical heritage and all the traditions that flowed from it. Had all the prophecies about Messiah opened straight in front of his face. Paul's point here is this. Even the theologian, the biblical experts, fare no better than the wise men. None of them, the Jewish people of the day, the rabbis, who did not embrace Messiah at his first coming, none of them had developed a system where the cross stood at the very center. None of them anticipated the good news from God that would make much of the crucifixion of the long-awaited Messiah. With Isaiah 53 opened up, the most clearest prophecy of the suffering servant, they missed him. Paul Astley says, where's the debater of this age? In Greek culture, rhetoric was so highly regarded by the best public philosophers. They were very gifted and trained in, in rhetoric. And to them, form was so important that they never cared to listen to the content of what anybody ever had to say. They were always just ready, oh, that, eh, you missed that there. Always critiquing. Oh, you didn't buy me there. That wasn't convincing enough. That didn't logically make sense. And Paul says, yeah, the message of the cross doesn't. So the fact of the matter is this, the end of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? These three experts of the day, the one who has the best philosophy, the one who can parse the, the Old Testament law out, the one who has the greatest rhetoric of the day, God has made these three foolish. The message of the cross, God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. His wisdom had determined this. Verse 21. In the wisdom of God, God determined that the world would not come to know him by their own wisdom. But in fact, it pleased God, meaning it was his very determined plan that they would come to know Christ and believe in the message by the simple preaching of the message. God's wisdom had determined that the world may not come to know him through their own form, whether that be philosophy or political strategy of the day or good works, being the best debater of the day. The solution of being reconciled to God comes from God, not from the world's wisdom. And while in God's wisdom, God actually determined that man is unable to come to him 
on their own terms, on their own wisdom. And while he has done that, notice what God has determined some men and some women to come to know him through the means of a foolish message of what is preached. Here's the relationship between the proclamation of the gospel message and the wisdom of God. It pleases God to save those through a preached message that is foolish to the world. God has in eternity past not only planned the people who have been saved, but he has planned the means by which he would save those people. And it is the word of the cross. It's the message of a crucified Christ that is folly to our world. And this, in fact, is wisdom. If you're holding a King James Version, this translation is unhelpful in this section. Okay? Um, because it almost makes it seem like preaching is actually foolishness. But Paul's point here is this. It's not actually the preaching that's foolish, but it's the message that you are speaking and preaching and proclaiming that is foolish. Notice that the thing that God uses to save men is not the presentation of the gospel. It is the content. This has not changed today. God is still making foolish every human effort to reconcile themselves to him, whether philosophy, political agenda today, meritoriously by your good works. Look at verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is is stronger than men. It is the message of the cross that reveals the wisdom of God by destroying human wisdom. Destroying human pursuit and holding up the only way that faith comes by hearing the message. And hearing, what message? The word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. We must not mess with this message. Because it is powerful enough to divide humanity. It is powerful enough to reveal that God's wisdom is far above all human wisdom. There is no other way to God except through God himself. Lastly, looking at verses 22 through 24. So we've seen that this message is powerful because it divides humanity. We've seen the message reveals the wisdom of God by destroying human wisdom. There is no other way to God but through the foolish message of Christ. Lastly, look at this. The message is God's means of calling his children to salvation, so we must not mess with it. I know I'm redundant, but at least I had one point to the message this morning. We shouldn't touch it. It should be proclaimed as it happened and as it has been preserved in his word. Here's where the meat of our application comes for us today. Notice the two ways in which the message of the cross was offensive to those living in the Corinthian culture. The Jews demand a sign. And the Greeks seek wisdom. But we're not going to give it to them. (laughs) We preach Christ crucified. That is, in fact, a stumbling block to the Jew. And folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews demand a sign in order to believe the message. 
the Greeks demand to be rhetorically persuaded and won over with reason and logic. Now, why, were, why, was, why did the Jews demand a sign? Why was the message of the cross stumbling to them? And here's where we need to dive a little bit deeper, okay, into what was going on in that day. Like I said at the beginning, they would not have this hung up behind them. It was a very offensive thing. But listen, why did the Jews demand a sign? Well, historically, this happened all the time in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, when the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus to see a sign, he replies with this, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for miraculous signs. Jesus meaning to say this, if I do another sign, you're not going to believe anyways. Now, we might think to ourselves, why would Jesus object the opportunity to perform more signs? Did not such requests give him opportunity to display more of his power? Could be. These questions miss the point, though. Because if we're listening to what the Jews are doing when they're demanding a sign, they are not longing for Jesus to display the power that is in a godly, submissive, and even desperate sort of way when they would ask Jesus to heal their family of certain things or themselves. There's another kind of point here that this request of Jesus, do another sign for us, that actually takes the person who is seeking Jesus to perform another sign, they actually take that person and they place him as a seat of judge over the Son of God. So I'm going to evaluate you, Jesus, and if it's good enough for me, if your credentials check out, then I'll see whether or not I should believe in you. And they're forgetting one day that God will be the one who actually weighs them. You can see the arrogance of this. And thus, this demand of, of signs from Jews becomes similar to those who are open to God, but but place conditions on their beliefs. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're open to the idea of believing in God, but you're still yet, eh, I don't know. I need to be convinced. I will devote myself to God if he heals my child. I will follow Jesus if I, if I can maintain my own independence. I will happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will turn from my sin and read my Bible if my marriage gets sorted out to my satisfaction. I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes all of my doubts. I am assessing him. He is not assessing me. I am not coming to him on his, his terms. Rather, I am stipulating the terms that he must prove himself to be true. What an arrogant way to think that we have any right to evaluate Jesus or that we have any right other than to be eternally destroyed by him because of our rebellion against him. This is the high, heady thinking, thinking much more of ourselves that the Jews often displayed all throughout the Gospels. The question should be this, will you accept me, an unworthy sinner? Not, can you do this to prove to me whether you're worth following or not? The reason that Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews is this, it was incredible to someone that had ended his life on a cross that could possibly be God's chosen one, which he didn't end his life on a cross. He rose victoriously from the grave. What was really interesting to me is I came across a document in, in the second century in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo. And I say that because I don't want to say that I came up with this. I don't really expect any of you to know what that is. Okay, I just said that. Um, but what Justin does is he actually attempts to convince a rabbi 
that Jesus is the Messiah with reference to Jan- Daniel chapter 7. And this is this rabbi's response. He says, Sir, these, Daniel 7, and such passages of Scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as the Son of Man. But this your so-called Christ is without honor and glory so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God for he was crucified. The reference to that is in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23. The one who hung on the tree was one who was cursed by God. So they point to their own law to say, no. Anyone who's hung on a tree is under the curse of God. No way could you get me to believe in this Messiah who is preached Christ crucified. How could Jesus be the promised Messiah? To a Jew, the fact of crucifixion of Jesus Christ disproved the very fact that Jesus could have been the Son of God. They would never have dreamed up a suffering Messiah. To the cross, the Jews to the, the cross of the Jews was an impossible barrier to overcome in belief in Jesus. What about the Greeks? The Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom. Okay, now that the Greeks, they only cared about rhetoric and the beauty of elegant speech. And heady presentations of arguments, worldviews, philosophies. To them, the Christian preacher with a blunt message seemed really crude, like an uncultured figure to be laughed at and and ridiculed rather than actually to be listened to and respected. You're going to come in here and just kind of tell me how it is. I need to turn from my sinful ways. Trust in Christ. Yeah, that had no, bah, that that had nothing to it. That That wasn't good. That didn't really win me. That had no flair, no fireworks, okay? Why was it folly to them? They're seeking wisdom, but why was it folly? In Greek thought, the first characteristic of God was his total inability to feel. The Greeks argued that if God can feel joy or sorrow or anger or grief, it means that some human being has for that moment influenced God and is therefore greater than him. So they went on to argue, it it follows that God must be incapable of all feeling so that none may ever affect him. So therefore, follow this, a God who suffered was to the Greeks a contradiction to their system. They went further to say that it was an insult to involve God in human affairs. God was utterly detached from humanity. So what idea does this fundamentally have an issue with? The idea of the incarnation, God becoming man, was revolting to the Greek mind in their understanding of who God was. St. Augustine, who was a very great scholar before he became a Christian, he said that in all of Greek philosophy, he found parallels to almost every teaching of Christianity. But the one thing he said he never found was the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's not, even, it's not even in their understanding. It's not even in their worldview. It's not even in their religion. To any thinking Greek, the incarnation was a total impossibility. To people who, though like that, it was incredible that one who had suffered as Jesus had suffered could possibly be the Son of God. So the Jews, 
the stumbling block, same message. To the Greeks, it's folly, same message. But what's the difference for those who are called, both Jew and Greek? No, no discrimination there. But for those who are called, Christ is actually power and wisdom. Notice with me that the one who receives and believes in Christ on his terms are those who are called. This phrase is what separates those who are perishing and those who are being saved. In verse 18, there was those who are perishing and those who are being saved. In verse 21, it saves those who believe. And we get a little, the curtain pulls back to our understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. In verse 24, to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. This calling refers to the effectual calling of God. Okay, I could stand up here and proclaim the message of God until I'm blue in the face, screaming and yelling, trying to get you to believe in the gospel message. And that might be using words of eloquent wisdom. That is a general call. Every Sunday, the gospel's preached as a general call. But every time someone actually responds to that call, it is not me. It is not first and foremost or primarily you responding. God is behind it by his spirit, effectually calling to his child who has been chosen before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 4. And they call them to believe in what is foolish to the world. The calling of God is a calling by his Holy Spirit that Paul will actually come back to in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 14, very quickly, I mean, we're right there. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In order to understand the foolishness of the cross, we must be taught by God. Jesus teaches that in John chapter 6. And the reason why God must be the primary activator in our salvation is in chapter 1 and verse 31. It's not so that we can be prideful. It's not so we can debate things. So that if it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This message of the cross is foolishness. I mean, for those of us who are a child of God, have, have been believers for any extended period of time. Um, the virgin birth, we just kind of don't even bat an eye at it. It's just like second nature to us. Oh yeah, I believe in it. But if you really think about it, that's foolishness. That's incredible. I mean, for any of you those, for any of, those of you who have ever struggled with infertility, how hard it is to <laughs> become pregnant. It's, 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 it doesn't make any sense. And yet, we can have the child of God come through a miraculous conception. Who told you to believe that? Because that's foolishness. The Spirit of God told you to believe that. We can't discern the nat these natural things without the Spirit of God. Who would ever believe in a God who actually took on human flesh, allowed himself to be killed, 
so that those who have rejected him could actually walk out free. And not just walk out free, but be fully satisfied in him for all of eternity. That's foolishness. Why do you believe that? Because the Spirit of God called you to. Another thing that becomes second nature to us. How in the world can God be three and one and one and three at the same time? That's foolishness. And yet we embrace it with no hesitation. I hope you do as a child of God. We don't need to embrace it in order to become Christian, okay? But what I'm saying is things that seem foolish, okay? You don't have to understand all the in, in and out workings of how the Trinity, that's hard. That hurts your mind to try to understand. But God has taught you to embrace him. On their own, the message of Christ would never be embraced. It is foolishness. Only because the Spirit of God do men come to hold the foolish message of the cross as something that is beautiful, something to rejoice in. Can I reconcile the tension that um, we would not believe in God unless he first woke us up to believe it? And the fact that if we don't believe, we're held eternally responsible. Can I wrestle those tensions? No. No one has. And it's been a debate for hundreds of years. Okay, so we're, don't ask me to do that this morning. But Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the natural man does not accept these things but it only because of the Spirit of God. How does God determine not to save some and yet leave some responsible when they reject him? I am not here to reconcile that tension here this morning. But tread carefully, because when you begin to take a position one or either way, you are trying to understand the mystery of how God determines to save men. And that, truly, honestly, that is outside of our concern. I believe there's an answer, but I don't have time this morning to actually give you my answer. But that's not the point. Here's the point. More importantly, when it comes to our responsibility with how we handle the message of the cross to a culture that hates it and rejects it, it is very clear from our text this morning that the way in which God has decided and determined to call sinners to himself is through the clear and plain proclamation of the gospel message. Not by the rhetoric not by eloquent wisdom. How could Paul say this in a culture that was just pushing back against him? Well, I believe this. Paul knew his role in the equation of how a sinner goes to a child of God. Paul knew his role. He never knew who God's children one was for eternity past and which one would believe the message and which one wouldn't. Right? Uh, Charles Spurgeon trying to reconcile this, his idea of God's sovereignty and salvation and his responsibility to share the gospel. Because without the gospel message preached, what are we going to believe in? Salvation can't come out. And Spurgeon says this, if all of God's elect had a little E written on the back of their neck, I would only preach the gospel to them. But because that's clearly not the case, I preach the gospel to all men. While we believe God is the primary driver in the seed of salvation, there is freedom in its offer because we do not. It's outside of our bounds to determine who gets to come. It is outside of our responsibility. And yet God, excuse me, Paul knew that God was sovereign over the salvation of men and not him. God does not need you. He does not need me to save sinners. And yet God has chosen that the means by which he saves sinners is through the foolishness of a crucified Christ. 
Paul knows that there is absolutely nothing he can do to save someone except share a clear presentation of the gospel and call people to repent and believe in it. And this is why Paul can have such confidence to share the message of Christ without messing with it. Imprisonment, shipwreck, same message every time. Man, I don't want to go to prison again. Maybe I could tamper with this message to get a better response so people don't hate me. No, no, he never messed with it. And this is why Paul not only can have confidence in the face of death to not mess with the message, but this is why he can rest peacefully after a conversation with someone, after preaching a message, not to worry, oh, did I, did I say the right thing? Did I, oh, did, did, I, did I reveal this enough? Did I, did I get into this enough? Did I, the fact that God is in control of his gospel proclamation and sinners coming to repentance, it should give us great confidence, but it should give us great peace that if we lay out the clear truths of the gospel and call men to repent, guess what? We have actually enabled the cross of Christ to be much powerful, not stripped it or emptied it of its power. Christ had sent Paul. He sends us to preach the message of the cross as is, not to tickle the ears, not to elevate ourselves, but to give opportunity for the power of God to work in the hard hearts of sinful man. The message of the cross reveals the power of God by dividing humanity, reveals the wisdom of God by showing that it trumps all human wisdom. And the proclamation of the gospel is the very means by which God calls sinners to repentance. So we mustn't mess with it. As we close, I have three comments. Going back to our question at the beginning, even in the face of a culture who rejects the foolish message of Christ, it is only by this message that those who are called will come to salvation. Therefore, we must not mess with So those who are effective gospel witnesses, those who, if you're here this morning and you want to be effective in your evangelism, let me give you three principles to hold on to. In order for us to be effective gospel witnesses, we must understand the power that the message of the cross holds. Understand that the message of the gospel, it does in fact have the power to separate life and death. It has the power to separate those who will spend an eternity knowing Christ more and more and those who will be condemned. Understand the power of the message that we proclaim. Number two, understand the wisdom that it holds, meaning this. No matter what philosophy, what worldview, what political answer anyone has in this world, no other message will bring us to God, reconciliation to him. While the world, if God's at the top of the mountain, the world will offer every single, every single answer to try to work our way up the mountain. But in Christianity, the, the mountain that we see, God has come down from it, saved us to bring us back up to him. There is only one message, and there is wisdom in that because God has, it pleased him 
that only through one way sinners would come to know him. So lastly, if we want to be effective gospel witnesses, lastly, we must rest in God's sovereignty. When it comes to him calling sinners to himself, he is in control. No matter the hostility of our culture, we must not mess with the message. May God help us as we seek to share this message, to know it well. If we don't know it well, how will we share it well? May the Lord help us in our understanding of the gospel so that we might be effective as we influence our world that is so hostile in many ways to the truth of God. Let's pray. Father, if it was not for your grace, we would not be in relationship with you. Father, you are sovereign over all things. And that shouldn't be something that causes us frustration. That shouldn't be something that causes us to grow mad. Father, that should be something that gives us confidence in the fact that if you called us, you finished the work that you've started in us. Father, if you have determined to save men by the faithful proclamation of a foolish message to the world being the crucified Christ, then help us to be all about it. Help us to find confidence in its power. Help us to find rest in your wisdom that there is only one, there is only one way so that when those laugh at us, our culture mocks us, we can stand resting in the fact that we know you. Father, help us not to tamper with the message. Help us not to fear those who can just harm the body, but help us to fear the one who can harm both body and soul, as you told us in Matthew chapter 10. Give us confidence. Help us to rest in the fact that this is your message. Help us to be careful with it. Help us to be bold. In 